welcome to a half hour of Mind Webs. Short stories from the worlds of speculative fiction. Mind Webs this time comes to you in two parts. First, we do a story from the book Welcome to the Monkey House by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. A short tale entitled Harrison Bergeron. The year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law, they were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th amendments to the Constitution and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General. Some things about living still weren't quite right, though. April, for example, still drove people crazy by not being springtime. And it was in that clammy month that the H.G. men took George and Hazel Bergeron's 14-year-old son, Harrison, away. It was tragic, all right, but George and Hazel couldn't think about it very hard. Hazel had a perfectly average intelligence, which meant she couldn't think about anything except in short bursts. And George, while his intelligence was way above normal, had a little mental handicap radio in his ear. He was required by law to wear it at all times. It was tuned to a government transmitter. Every 20 seconds or so, the transmitter would send out some sharp noise to keep people like George from taking unfair advantage of their brains. George and Hazel were watching television. There were tears on Hazel's cheeks, but she'd forgotten for the moment what they were all about. On the television screen were ballerinas. A buzzer sounded in George's head. His thoughts fled in panic like bandits from a burglar alarm, and Hazel said, That was a real pretty dance. That dance they just did. Huh? Th that dance. It was nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. George tried to think a little about the ballerinas. They weren't really very good, no better than anybody else would have been anyway. They were burdened with sash weights and bags of birdshot, and their faces were masked, so that no one seeing a free and graceful gesture or a pretty face would feel like something the cat drug in. George was toying with the vague notion that maybe dancers shouldn't be handicapped. But he didn't get very far with it before another noise in his ear radio scattered his thoughts. George winced. So did two out of the eight ballerinas. Hazel saw him wince. Having no mental handicap herself, she had to ask George what the latest sound had been. It sounded like somebody hitting a milk bottle with a ball-peen hammer. I think it'd be real interesting hearing all the different sounds. All the things they think up. Uh, uh, only if I was the handicapper general, you know what I'd do? Hazel, as a matter of fact, bore a strong resemblance to the handicapper general, a woman named Diana Moon Glampers. If I was Diana Moon Glampers, I'd have chimes on Sunday. Just chimes. Kind of in honor of religion. 
I could think if it was just chimes. Well, maybe make them real loud. I think I'd make a good handicapper general. Good as anybody else. Who knows better than I do what normal is? Right. George began to think glimmeringly about his abnormal son who was now in jail. About Harrison. But a 21-gun salute in his head stopped that. Boy, that was a doozy, wasn't it? Ooh. It was such a doozy that George was white and trembling, and tears stood on the rims of his red eyes. Two of the eight ballerinas had collapsed to the studio floor, were holding their temples. All of a sudden, you look so tired. Why don't you stretch out on the sofa so as you can rest your handicapped bag on the pillows, honey bunch? She was referring to the 47 pounds of birdshot in a canvas bag that was padlocked around George's neck. Go on and rest the bag for a little bit. I don't care if you're not equal to me for a while. George weighed the bag with his hands. I don't mind it. I don't notice it anymore. It's just a part of me. Oh, you've been so tired lately, kind of wore out. Oh, if there was just some way we could make a little hole in the bottom of the bag and just... Take out a few of them lead balls. Just, just a few. Two years in prison and $2,000 fine for every ball I took out? I don't call that a bargain. Well, if you could just take a few out when you come home from work. I mean, you don't compete with anybody around here. You just sit around. If I tried to get away with it, then other people would get away with it. And pretty soon we'd be right back to the dark ages again. With everybody competing against everybody else. Now, you wouldn't like that, would you? I'd hate it. Well, there you are. The minute people start cheating on laws, what do you think happens to society? If Hazel hadn't been able to come up with an answer to this question, George couldn't have supplied one. A siren was going off in his head. I reckon it'd fall apart. What would? Society. Wasn't that what you just said? Who knows? The television program was suddenly interrupted for a news bulletin. It wasn't clear at first as to what the bulletin was about, since the announcer, like all announcers, had a serious speech impediment. For about half a minute, and in a state of high excitement, the announcer tried to say the words. He finally gave up and handed the bulletin to the ballerina. That's all right. He tried. That's the big thing. He tried to do the best he could with what God gave him. He should get a nice raise for trying so hard. Ladies and gentlemen, said the ballerina, reading the bulletin. She must have been extraordinarily beautiful because the mask she wore was hideous. And it was easy to see that she was the strongest and most graceful of all the dancers. For her handicapped bags were as big as those worn by 200-pound men. And she had to apologize at once for her voice, which was a very unfair voice for a woman to use. Her voice was a warm, luminous, timeless melody. <coughs> Excuse me. She said and began again, making her voice absolutely uncompetitive. Harrison Bergeron, age 14, has just escaped from jail, where he was held on suspicion of plotting to overthrow the government. He is a genius and an athlete is under-handicapped and should be regarded as extremely dangerous. A police photograph of Harrison Bergeron was flashed on the screen upside down, then sideways, upside down again, then right side up. 
The picture showed the full length of Harrison against a background calibrated in feet and inches. He was exactly seven feet tall. The rest of Harrison's appearance was Halloween and hardware. Nobody had ever worn heavier handicaps. He had outgrown hindrances faster than the HG men could think them up. Instead of a little ear radio for a mental handicap, he wore a tremendous pair of earphones and spectacles with thick, wavy lenses. The spectacles were intended to make him not only half-blind, but to give him wanging headaches besides. Scrap metal was hung all over him. Ordinarily, there was a certain symmetry, a military neatness to the handicaps issued to strong people. But Harrison looked like a walking junkyard. In the race of life, Harrison carried 300 pounds. And to offset his good looks, the H.G. men required that he wear at all times a red rubber ball for a nose, keep his eyebrows shaved off, and cover his even white teeth with black caps at Snaggletooth Random. If you see this boy, do not, I repeat, do not try to reason with him. There was a shriek of a door being torn from its hinges. Screams and barking cries of consternation came from the television set. The photograph of Harrison Bergeron on the screen jumped again and again as though dancing to the tune of an earthquake. George Bergeron correctly identified the earthquake as well he might have, for many was the time his own home had danced to the same crashing tune. My God, that must be Harrison. The realization was blasted from his mind instantly by the sound of an automobile collision in his head. When George could open his eyes again, the photograph of Harrison was gone. A living, breathing Harrison filled the screen. Clanking, clownish, huge, Harrison stood in the center of the studio, the knob of the uprooted studio door still in his hand. Ballerinas, technicians, musicians, announcers all cowered on their knees before him, expecting to die. I am the emperor. Do you hear? I am the emperor. Everybody must do what I say at once. Harrison stamped his foot and the studio shook. He bellowed, Even as I stand here, crippled, hobbled, sickened, I am a greater ruler than any man who has ever lived. Now, watch me become what I can become. Harrison tore the straps of his handicap harness like wet tissue paper. Tore straps guaranteed to support 5,000 pounds. Harrison's scrap iron handicaps crashed to the floor. And Harrison thrust his thumbs under the bar of the padlock that secured his head harness. The bar snapped like celery. Harrison smashed his headphones and spectacles against the wall. He flung away his rubber ball nose, revealed a man that would have awed Thor, the god of thunder. I shall now select my empress. Let the first woman who dares rise to her feet claim her mate and her throne. A moment passed, and then a ballerina arose, swaying like a willow. Harrison plucked the mental handicap from her ear, snapped off her physical handicaps with marvelous delicacy. Last of all, he removed her mask. She was blindingly beautiful. Taking her hand, he said, Now, 
shall we show the people the meaning of the word dance? <laughs> Music! The musicians scrambled back into their chairs, and Harrison stripped them of their handicaps, too. Play your best, and I'll make you barons and dukes and earls! The music began. It was normal at first, cheap, silly, false. But Harrison snatched two musicians from their chairs, waved them like batons as he sang the music as he wanted it played. He slammed them back into their chairs. The music began again and was much improved. Harrison and his empress merely listened to the music for a while, listened gravely, as though synchronizing their heartbeats with it. They shifted their weights to their toes, and Harrison placed his big hands on the girl's tiny waist, letting her sense the weightlessness that would soon be hers. And then, in an explosion of joy and grace, into the air they sprang. Not only were the laws of the land abandoned, but the law of gravity and the laws of motion as well. They reeled, whirled, swiveled, flounced, capered, gambled, and spun. They leaped like deer on the moon. The studio ceiling was 30 feet high, but each leap brought the dancers nearer to it. It became their obvious intention to kiss the ceiling. They kissed it. And then, neutralizing gravity with love and pure will, they remained suspended in air inches below the ceiling. And they kissed each other for a long, long time. It was then that Diana Moon Glampers, the handicapper general, came into the studio with a double-barreled 10-gauge shotgun. She fired twice, and the emperor and the empress were dead before they hit the floor. Diana Moon Glampers loaded the gun again. She aimed it at the musicians and told them they had 10 seconds to get their handicaps back on. It was then the Bergeron's television tube burned out. Hazel turned to comment about the blackout to George, but George had gone out into the kitchen for a can of beer. George came back in with the beer, paused while a handicap signal shook him up, and then he sat down again and said to Hazel, You been crying? Yep. What about? Well, I forget. Something real sad on television. What was it? It's all kind of mixed up in my mind. Forget sad things. I always do. That's my girl. George winced. There was the sound of a riveting gun in his head. Gee, I could tell that one was a doozy. Oh, you can say that again. Gee, I could tell that one was a doozy.
You've heard the story of Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut Jr., taken from his book, Welcome to the Monkey House. Joining me in the reading, in order of appearance, were Carol Cowan, Ken Ost, Ward Paxton, Marty Van Cleef, and Carl Schmidt. The second story tonight is called The Haunted Spacesuit by Arthur C. Clarke. It's from the book 50 Short Science Fiction Tales, edited by Isaac Asimov and Groff Conklin. When satellite control called me, I was writing up the day's progress report in the observation bubble, the glass-domed office that juts out from the axis of the space station like the hubcap of a wheel. It was not really a good place to work, for the view was too overwhelming. Only a few yards away, I could see the construction teams performing their slow-motion ballet as they put the station together like a giant jigsaw puzzle. And beyond them, 20,000 miles below, was the blue-green glory of the full Earth, floating against the raveled star clouds. Station supervisor here, I answered, what's the trouble? Our radar is showing a small echo two miles away, almost stationary, about five miles west of Sirius. Can you give us a visual report on it? Now, anything matching our orbit so precisely could hardly be a meteor. It would have to be something we dropped, perhaps an inadequately secured piece of equipment that had drifted away from the station. So I assumed. But when I pulled out my binoculars and searched the sky around Orion, I soon found my mistake. Though this space traveler was man-made, it had nothing to do with us. I've found it, I told Control. It's someone's test satellite, cone-shaped four antennas, probably U.S. Air Force, early 1960s, judging by the design. I know they lost track of several when their transmitters failed. There were quite a few attempts to hit this orbit before they finally made it. Well, after a brief search through the files, Control was able to confirm my guess. It took a little longer to find that now, in 1988, Washington wasn't in the least bit interested in our discovery and would be just as happy if we lost it again. But they said, well, we can't do that. Even if nobody wants it, the thing's a menace to navigation. Someone had better go out and haul it aboard, get it out of orbit. That someone, I realized, would have to be me. I dared not detach a man from the closely knit construction teams. We were already behind schedule. And a single day's delay on this job cost a million dollars. All the radio and TV networks on Earth were waiting impatiently for the moment when they could route their programs through us and thus provide the first truly global service spanning the world from pole to pole. Well, I'll go out and get it, I answered, control. And though I tried to sound as if I were doing everyone a great favor, I was secretly not at all displeased. It had been at least two weeks since I'd been outside. The only member of the staff I passed on my way to the airlock was Tommy, our recently acquired cat. Pets mean a great deal to men thousands of miles from Earth, but there are not very many animals that can adapt themselves to a weightless environment. Tommy mewed plaintively at me as I clambered into my spacesuit, but I was in too much of a hurry to play with him. 
At this point, I should perhaps remind you that the suits we use on the station are completely different from the flexible affairs men wear when they want to walk around the moon. Ours are really baby space ships, just about big enough to hold one man. They're stubby cylinders about seven feet long fitted with low-powered propulsion jets. and They have a pair of accordion-like sleeves at the upper end for the operator's arms. As soon as I'd settled down inside my very exclusive spacecraft, I switched on power and checked the gauges on the tiny instrument panel. All my needles were well in the safety zone, so I gave Tommy a wink for luck, lowered the transparent hemisphere over my head and sealed myself in. For a short trip like this, I uh, didn't bother to check the suit's internal lockers, which were used to carry food and special equipment for extended missions. As the conveyor belt decanted me into the airlock, I felt like an Indian papoose being carried along on its mother's back. Then the pumps brought the pressure down to zero. The outer door opened, and the last traces of air swept me out into the stars, turning very slowly head over heels. The station was only a dozen feet away, yet I was now an independent planet, a little world of my own. I was sealed up in a tiny mobile cylinder with a superb view of the entire universe. But I had practically no freedom of movement inside the suit. The padded seat and safety belts prevented me from turning around, though I could reach all the controls and lockers with my hands or with my feet. In space, the great enemy is the sun, which can blast you to blindness in seconds. So very cautiously, I opened up the dark filters on the night side of my suit and then turned my head to look out at the stars. At the same time, I switched the helmet's external sunshade to automatic so that whichever way the suit gyrated, my eyes would be shielded. Presently, I found my target, a bright fleck of silver whose metallic glint distinguished it clearly from the surrounding stars. I stamped on the jet control pedal and felt a mild surge of acceleration as the low-powered rocket set me moving away from the station. After ten seconds of steady thrust, I cut off the drive. It would take me five minutes to coast the rest of the way and not much longer to return to my salvage. It was at that moment as I launched myself out into the abyss that I knew that something was horribly wrong. It's never completely silent inside a spacesuit. You can always hear the gentle hiss of oxygen, the faint whir of fans and motors, the susurration of your own breathing. Even if you listen carefully enough, the rhythmic thump that's the pounding of your heart. These sounds reverberate through the suit, unable to escape into the surrounding void. They're the unnoticed background of life in space for you are aware of them only when they change. Well, they had changed now. To them had been added a sound which I, I could not identify. It was an intermittent, muffled sort of thudding, sometimes accompanied by a scraping noise. I froze instantly, holding my breath and trying to locate the alien sound with my ears. The meters on the control board gave no clues. All the needles were rock steady in their scales, and there were none of the flickering red lights that would warn of impending disaster. That was some comfort, but not much. 
I had long ago learned to trust my instincts in such matters. It was their alarm signals that were flashing now, telling me to return to the station before it was too late. Well, even now, I do not like to recall those next few minutes as panic slowly flooded into my mind like a rising tide overwhelming the dikes of reason and logic that every man must erect against the mystery of the universe. I knew then what it was to face insanity. No other explanation fitted the facts. For it was no longer possible to pretend that the noise disturbing me was that of some faulty mechanism. Though I was in utter isolation far from any other human being or indeed any material object, I was not alone. The soundless void was bringing to my ears the faint but unmistakable stirrings of life. In that first heart-freezing moment, it seemed that something was trying to get into my suit, something invisible seeking shelter from the cruel and pitiless vacuum of space. I whirled madly in my harness, scanning the entire sphere of vision around me except for the blazing forbidden cone towards the sun. There was nothing there, of course. There could not be, yet that purposeful scrabbling was clearer than ever. Despite the nonsense that has been written about us, it's not true that spacemen are superstitious. But can you blame me if, as I came to the end of logic's resources, I suddenly remembered how Bernie Summers had died no further from the station than I was at this very moment? It was one of those impossible accidents. It always is. Three things had gone wrong at once. Bernie's oxygen regulator had run wild and sent the pressure soaring. The safety valve had failed to blow, and a faulty joint had given way. In a fraction of a second, his suit was open to space. I had never known Bernie, but suddenly his fate became of overwhelming importance to me, for a horrible idea had come into my mind. One does not talk about these things, but a damaged spacesuit is too valuable to be thrown away, even if it has killed its wearer. It's repaired, it's renumbered, and then issued to someone else. What happens to the soul of a man who dies between the stars far from his native world? Were you still here, Bernie, clinging to that last object that linked you to your lost and distant home? As I fought the nightmares that were swirling around me, for now it seemed that the scratchings and soft fumblings were coming from all directions, there was one last hope to which I clung. For the sake of sanity, I had to prove that this wasn't Bernie's suit, that the metal wall so closely wrapped around me had never been another man's coffin. It took me several tries before I could press the right button and switch my transmitter to the emergency wavelength. Station, I called. I'm in trouble. Get records to check my suit. I never finished. They say my yell wrecked the microphone. But what man, what man alone in the absolute isolation of space would not have yelled when something patted him softly on the back of the neck? 
I must have lunged forward despite the safety harness and smashed against the upper edge of the control panel. When the rescue squad reached me a few minutes later, I was still unconscious with an angry bruise across my forehead. And so I was the last person in the whole satellite relay system to know what had happened. When I came to my senses an hour later, all our medical staff was gathered around my bed, but it was quite a while before the doctors and certainly the cute little space nurse bothered to look at me. They were much too busy playing with the three little kittens that our badly misnamed Tommy had been rearing in my spacesuit's number three storage locker. The second story tonight was The Haunted Spacesuit by Arthur C. Clarke. It's from the book 50 Short Science Fiction Tales, which is edited by Isaac Asimov and Groff Conklin. This is Michael Hansen speaking. Production engineer for Mindwebs is Steve Gordon. Mindwebs is produced at WHA Radio in Madison, a service of University of Wisconsin Extension.